Good morning, welcome, feel comfortable, whatever you are, you're in God's hands. Thank you for the beautiful music. Thank you for the gift of music, the talent of music, because it is a treatable talent, but also God will require an accounting of that. And I'm thankful to God that there is a man here who uses his talents for God's glory. God bless you, Brother Ruben Capistrano. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for extending another week in order for us to gain in wisdom, in understanding, in the things of God. Even Christ himself, the testimony of his life was from the time he was born, he began to learn from his mother. And the child waxed strong in spirit and in wisdom, and he grew in favor with God and man. That should be the testimony of our lives. And we're trying to do that here through our study sermons, that we all have a part in developing God's image in each one of us by the work that he wants us to accomplish. Not what we want to do, but according to God's will, but only 
with our willing and voluntary consent. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get back on track from where we left off to continue this journey of how to study scriptures, specifically on the subtopic of the uh, willing consent of the governed. This is God's government, by the way. If you're asking, what is this? This is part of God's kingdom of grace and the kingdom and the government of his kingdom on earth, which we are into right now, If you, in case you didn't know. So I'm just reminding you that we don't lose sight of the mission, the goal, um, what we desire and expect to achieve in this short journey. It should be packed, by the way, with excitement. I'd like to open up this uh, particular uh, chapter of our study with two verses. They're similar because it, it's part of the synoptic gospels. I'm going to begin reading in Matthew 7, 13 uh, and 14. These I know some of you have already committed to memory, but I'm going to read and you'll see there's something added to it, not because man added to it, but God did. Okay? Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, enter ye in. He's not forcing you, okay? Okay. When you read stuff like this, it's saying you have a choice. Then it says, enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. And many there be which will go in thereat. Verse following says, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now let's turn to the book of Luke. The, the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 13. And I'm going to start reading, and I want you to listen very carefully, because I paid very close attention to this on the topic we are currently uh, going through carefully. Luke chapter 13, verse uh, 22 to 26, no, to 27. Context, remember? Text taken out of context to say pretext. Don't want to be guilty of that. Luke 13, verses 22 to 27. And I'll begin to read. And Jesus went through the cities and the villages teaching. So this is a teaching lesson. And he was, excuse me, journeying towards Jerusalem, the city. All right. Then said one of unto him. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Or in a, today's language, will there be few that will be saved? I was, you know, I was just reading to this. Why would this man ask that kind of a question? Something was going on in his mind and all around them. Then said one to him, Lord, are there few that be saved? Jesus apparently honored that kind of a question because he replied in this manner. He said, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able the following verse says, For when once the master of the house is risen up and hath that 
and I shut the door, and you begin to stand outside or without and to knock on that door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not. Whence are ye? Then verse 27 says, then you shall begin to say, there's a conversation going on here to illustrate the whole situation. Then shall you begin to say, well, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou wast taught in our streets. So apparently all these teachings were being invoked as the qualification. But what is the answer? Verse 27, but he that is within shall say, I tell you, I knew you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Now, I read this sometime before. I read it on its own without considering the context. Now I'm reading it within the context. The next verse following. What does it say? There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When? That's a pouring time. When you shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And you yourselves are thrust out. You want to read it again for yourself? You must. I cannot continue reading this to you, but I'm doing this because it is my responsibility, my accountability, which transfers to you once you understand it. That's how the Bible goes. That's the work of the gospel, by the way. So on this topic, I'm going to work on three subsections, consent. But the first part will be God and our consent. And so we just read that passage, very important passage. It says, enter in. And I'm going to tell you, friends, those who are forced to enter in on that straight and narrow gate, or those who force themselves, not voluntarily, willingly, and spontaneously, which is the genius of freedom and liberty, will find themselves at the end at the other at the wrong side of this. So when you read this now, you begin to understand the liberty that Christ has given to us to choose. Choose you this day whom you will serve. I like this. God cannot work in man without his consent. So for us to say, well, well God will do this for me. Let's be very careful with what we say might be rejecting the very word of Christ that forbids that kind of thinking. Yeah, God created the world without our help. We couldn't help him anyway, in any way. But where the plan of salvation is concerned, it is a cooperative effort. It's collaborative. So God cannot work in man without his consent. And I love this passage from the Mount of Blessing, which is based on the Sermon on the Mount and also the you know, the five, six, seven chapters of Matthew, the opening chapters. The Christian life, this is Mount of Blessing 142. The Christian life is a battle and a march. But the victory must be gained. The victory that is to be gained is not by human power. The field of conflict is the domain of the heart. That the battlefields, the heart itself, 
the battle which we have to fight. The greatest battle that was ever fought by man, guess what it is? This battle is the surrender of self to God and the yielding of the heart to the sovereignty of love. What kind of love? It's divine. It's not human love. It's all over Hollywood. It's all over the place. That's of the earth. So what is the greatest battle that man will ever have to fight? That's the greatest battle that has ever, that will ever be fought by mankind is the surrender of self to God and the yielding of the heart to the sovereignty of divine love. What will happen in that process? The old nature, and you read that in 1 Corinthians 15.50. Now I understood that when I read it. It says that, the old nature, born of blood and of the will of the flesh, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Are we reading the pieces of Paul properly? Or are we pick and choosing? That old nature that is born of blood and the will of the flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That means the hereditary tendencies, the former habits must be given up. That sounds hard right now, isn't it? That's why it's the greatest battle. You know, the greatest emperors that conquered, they conquered kingdoms, but they couldn't conquer self. They're defeated. And yet those saints whom they considered wretched, they persecuted, they tortured to death. Looked like they had defeated the few that entered the straight and narrow. But at the end, they had earned eternal life. He who determines to enter that spiritual kingdom will find that all the powers and the passions of the unregenerate heart, that's, that is what is meant by those who are born of blood, and the will of the flesh, that unregenerate nature, that is backed up by the forces of the kingdom of darkness, or two kingdoms struggling, will be arrayed against him. So when you read, and you and I read this morning, when Jesus invited and answered the question of that man, are there few be saved? Jesus says, enter into the straight and narrow gate, because few are found therein. Make that choice today, only make it voluntary and willingly, not because you're afraid of anything, but because of the power of love. You are actually, you and I are actually facing all these this passions of the unregenerate nature backed up by the forces of the kingdom of darkness. They're all arrayed against those that will choose to go through that straight and narrow path, the end of which is eternal life. And to be more specific, what does that really mean? Okay. I like explanations. I don't want general generalities or hasty generalizations. Very deceiving. This, this specific means selfishness and pride. Sounds like Satan's character. Will make a stand against anything that would show them to be sinful. Now, I was just reading this and it says, no wonder everybody's enjoying sin. I said, do you really mean that? Yes, because that's human nature. And when you say that the law has been done away with, 
What is there to define sin? Satan has won the battle. Sad to say. Our work is to bring back and to repair the bridge in the wall. Which we are doing right now by God's grace. We cannot of ourselves make sure. We cannot of ourselves conquer the evil desires and habits that are actually striving for the mastery. We'll read that very shortly uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. We cannot overcome the mighty enemy who holds us in his thrall. The word thrall means thraldom or the state of servitude and slavery. We cannot. That's the mighty enemy who holds us in his servitude and slavery. God alone can give us the victory. So when you and I read and talk about and preach and maybe pontificate about the experience of Israel being delivered from slavery to Egypt, you better relate that to the actual application to your life and mine. They couldn't free themselves. God had to deliver them. In like manner, we cannot be freed on our own. God alone can give us the victory. So you know where to turn to when you're struggling with this. He who desires Jesus desires us to have the mastery over our own selves. Our own wills and our own ways. He's not taking it away. He says, I want you to have control and mastery over this. But he cannot work in us without, 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 without our consent. One, that's mental. And cooperation, that's action. And how does this happen? It's by, it should be followed by willing and an energetic physical response and action. The divine spirit will work through the faculties and the powers given to man. What are they? Those five senses, the heart and the heart and the mind. And don't forget the conscience, which we have been studying. Our energies are required to cooperate with God. You understand that? Can two walk together except they be agreed? Cooperation, yielding, consenting, acceding. But this victory is not won without much prayer. There you go. We've been talking about prayer. This is part of. It's not the only one. Because some people say, all I need to do is pray. Uh, everybody likes to pray. But does everybody like to obey? You answer that question. And I want you to read Proverbs 28.9. Because the wise man wrote, that if we refuse to even listen to the law, our prayers are an abomination. Strong word, isn't it? But it is true. The victory is not won without much prayer. One, without the humbling of self at every step. Our will is not to be forced into cooperation with the divine agencies. But it must be voluntarily submitted. For were it possible to force upon you with a hundredfold greater intensity the, the influence of God, of the Spirit of God, it would not make you and I a Christian. And that's how they try to convert millions and millions and millions of people in the old world. And it's coming again. 
trying to make them Christian by persecution and force. And this we need to understand. Were it possible to, to force upon anyone with a hundredfold greater intensity the influence of the Holy Spirit, it would never make anyone a Christian. A fit subject of heaven. That's what heaven is like, friends. Because the stronghold of Satan would not be broken. It's still there. Remember, I want you to remember this, and I constantly remember this. The will is the governing power in the nature of man. Animals, which the evolution says we all came from animals, not only animals, but insects, not only insects, but microbes, not only microbes, but invisible, whatever that is. Terrible, amoeba. Well, the will is the governing power in the nature of man. Man being created in the image and likeness of God, the only creature. The crowning act of his creative genius and his creative power. Animals have neither conscience nor rational minds. They merely rely and function on natural instinct. And so we proceed with this. The will must be placed on the side of God's will. We are not able of ourselves to bring our purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God. Now here's the secret. Here's the secret I was reading through. I says, whoa, it sounds so simple. But this is the answer. But if you and I are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you and me. Hear that? Let me go to that again. But if you and I are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you and me. And quoted here is the passage from Paul's writings, including and even the casting down of imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Powerful, isn't it? Yes. Then and only then, Will you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? For it is God who works in you to do two things, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. That's why in the way we study God's word, it makes every sense that we understand the context. And we invoke the contextual meaning of those verses we are quoting, because apparently Satan knows how to study the Bible too and confuses, isn't it? So here's what here's a special thought. You know, God will only, and I'd like to emphasize this, okay, because this is rife in the world today in Christianity. I'm sorry to say that, but that's true. And you've heard it. Probably you believe that too. When people say, Well, God will do everything for you, don't worry. That's not biblical. For God will only accomplish the work for you and me if we are first willing to be made willing because God doesn't force our wills. Satan does. The government of every, of false governments, by the way, outside of God's government of grace and love, doesn't want you to be willing to be made willing. They will force you to be willing. That's not God. 
if we are first willing to be made willing and then voluntarily and willingly choose to place this willing will on God's unchanging will, that's how it works. Because otherwise we shall be deceived with Satan's counterfeit. It's called peace and safety in, in Second Thessalonians. It's ear-pleasing. It's a conditionless assurance that because, oh, God is good. He will do all things for us because he loves us and because we earnestly prayed for it in faith. Oh, you know what that is, friends? That is presumption, the counterfeit of biblical faith. But many are attracted by the beauty of Christ. Let me tell you, you can't read hearts. Sometimes we judge people the wrong way. Samuel made a terrible error. He was a prophet of God. He was a faithful prophet of God. But well, when God told him, go to the house of Jesse, I want you to find a replacement for this king Saul. He went there. He, he obeyed. Then he met the father. He says, uh, one of your sons is going to be anointed as a replacement for King Saul. And says, I'm going to bring them out. Well, he brought out the best right away of this, his sons. And God says, no, I haven't chosen him. He went down the whole line until he says, do you have any more sons? Well, the father said, look, I think I have one out there. He's watching the sheep. Maybe I'll call him in. And when he walks in, God tells Samuel, Samuel, I have chosen him. And that's where you find that wonderful passage in the scriptures. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. You see, we can be easily deceived as one-third of the angels were deceived in heaven and Eve was deceived in the Garden of Eden. Many are attracted to, by the beauty of Christ and the glory of heaven. But we can stop there. Yet who shrink from the condition by which alone this can become their own. There are many in the broad way who are not fully satisfied with the path in which they are walking. In their hearts, they long to break from the slavery of sin. And in their own strength, their own strength, they seek to make a stand against their sinful practices. They look towards that straight and narrow way and straight gate, but something's, something's resisting. But the selfish pleasures the love of the world, the pride, the unsanctified ambitions are placing a barrier between them and the Savior. To renounce their own will, their chosen objects of affection, whether it's animate or inanimate, or pursuits, requires a sacrifice of which they hesitate, first part. Second, they falter. And then without controlling themselves, they soon turn back. So it is a process. As Jesus himself said, which we just read in Luke 13, 24, many will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Many will not be able. Few will. That is a matter of choice now. They desire the good, they make some effort to obtain it, but they do not choose it. Now, what does the word choose mean? It's more than just mental assent. 
To choose means it is and must be a settled purpose to secure it at the cost of anything. That's what choice means. It's not half-hearted. It's full-hearted. It's not halfway. It is all the way to the end of the world. What shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world? Whole world. And lose his own soul. What is the good news about this whole thing now? The only hope for us if we would overcome is to unite our will to God's will and then work in cooperation with Him. How often? Once a week when we get to church or listen to the sermons? Hour by hour, day by day, year in, year out. Because we cannot retain self, this fallen sinful self, and yet enter the kingdom of God. If we ever attain unto holiness, and you should read 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Some people say it's not a requirement. It is. It says, a holiness without which we cannot see the holy God. You should read that for yourself. If we ever attain unto holiness, that's the holiness of God and the holiness of man, it will be through the renunciation of self and the reception of the mind of Christ. That's what Paul, Paul wrote down in Philippians 2, 5 and 129. And if you read 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, 1 Timothy 1, 18, there is a warfare. That warfare which we are to wage is called the good fight of faith, 1 Timothy 6, 12. And as Paul wrote, I also labor, he says, striving according to his working, not his works, but his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now, oh, I love that. Which worketh in me mightily. That's not my strength. That is the strength of God. Colossians 1.29. Now, I know all of you, all of you, in one way or the other, are familiar with Jacob. Christianity talks about Jacob who became Israel, and everybody looks to Israel. But the name Jacob is very important to begin with. That's the old flesh, the carnal mind. His name actually means supplanter. That's exactly what he did in the earlier part of his life. That was his journey. But let's look at something Wonderful that happened. That happened. It's a matter of history now. Jacob, in the great crisis of his life, you can relate to this now. What did he do? He turned aside to pray. What did he pray for? Jacob, actually, at the time, at that crisis, when he feared for his life, he was filled with one overmastering purpose. And you would think, oh, he wants delivery. Listen to what this says. J Jacob was filled with one overmastering purpose, and that was to seek for transformation of character. All right? That was even before he was attacked by the so-called enemy. But look what was happening. But while he was pleading with God, an enemy 
as he supposed, placed his hand upon him, and then the battle ensued, the physical battle. And the whole night he wrestled for his life. But the purpose of his soul was not changed by the peril itself. What a lesson it is. And then when his strength was almost nearly spent, the angel put forth his divine power and at his touch, Jacob knew him, with whom he had been contending. Now wounded and helpless, he fell upon the Savior's breast. Oh, look at this. He was pleading for a blessing. He would not be turned aside nor cease his intercession. And you know what? And Christ granted the petition of this helpless, repentant, penitent soul according to a promise. And what was that in Isaiah 27, 5? Let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. I'd like to end with that. Because this world has been vainly seeking for peace and vainly seeking for happiness. They'll never find it. Jacob found it. David found it. Paul found it. The numberless saints who were tortured to death for sending for their faith found it. They are recorded, both names and unnamed saints, in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. You want to be included there? I want to be included there. I want the strength of God. I want to be able to make a choice to enter the straight and narrow path. But I know what it will take. God has given me a heads up. If you want, God does not have any surprises except for the mysteries that will be revealed if we know how to study the God. So may God bless all of you as we continue the study. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for teaching us that if we are willing to be made willing, God will do the work for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.